baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Part of working for a company is taking time away from that company, and I think you damn well deserve it. I'm talking about paid time off because I was reminded again how many Americans don't take their full allotment of paid time off. And to me, this is such a foreign concept. And I realize that I guess... I'm in a favorable position because it is a foreign concept to me that if I get two, three, four, whatever weeks off as part of uh, my employment, that I'm taking those days. It doesn't mean, no, I don't love my job. That doesn't mean, no, geez, you're not, a, you're not committed to your company. It means that I've earned those days. That I, f- I value time away from work. There's nothing wrong with valuing time away from work. And if that isn't your thing, great. If, you, if, if your job and your employment is absolutely what drives you and what, what motivates you every single day, there's nothing wrong with that either. And for a lot of people, I, I totally understand too that I can't take time away because I feel like I'll fall behind that's unfortunate because we all i think deserve to have time away from work and i think because it it's beneficial for you your friends your family i can't imagine not being able to do that it's actually one of the perks of this i've loved working here and in two weeks it'll be 24 years since I started here? I can never remember if that's 23 or 24. That's a long run. That is a long run. The same employer. And they could come to me after the show today and say, it was a good run, now it's over. Okay, that's your choice. But one of the benefits of this job has always been the ability and the flexibility to step away from it. And that's not to say that that could come at a risk. There's a chance, like if I took the day off or a week off, and whether it's Jordana doing the show and they say, you know, I think Jordana could just do the show alone. Or if they get a fill-in saying, boy, that person's really good on the radio, I think that that's a, that could be a permanent permanent uh, host. I understand that's part of the, the risk, I guess. But uh, I'm fortunate to have that flexibility to take the time off. I'm also fortunate what really helps is the if I do take a extended time off, it's not like when I get back here, I'm going to be way behind on stuff. As yeah. long as I pay relatively close attention to what's happening in the world, I'll be just fine coming back. And But I, I, I get it. That is a big advantage to this job, and a lot of people mm-hmm. can't do that, where it's like if I step away for a day or a week, oh, I'm just going to be flooded when I get back. That's why so many of us take work on the road with us. I mean, how many people go on a vacation completely separated from their job, saying, nope, I'm not going to do one thing in relation to my employment, 
Not a lot of people do that. But it is shocking to me that it's nearly half of U.S. workers don't take their full allotment of paid time off. Yeah. I think the key word in what you just said to me is is benefit. And we talk about the benefits right. of employment, which one of the benefits of employment is the paycheck you get. But obviously there's a lot more in the uh, health care and time off and on and on. You you know, every year you elect your benefits. And uh, I, uh, it sounds silly, but we should take our benefits. That's why we're here. You would never, like, not cash your paycheck or say – Ah, uh, no thanks. I, I, don't, I don't need. Care. I don't need yeah, the health care. You can have a pocket back. For no, you take those benefits because that's why you show up to work. And for employees to feel like they're not able, they're they're going to do all the work, but then they're not able to reap some of the benefits of that job. Now, maybe you have a job where time off is not one of the benefits. Yep. Well, that's a different scenario. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about people who yes. work all year round, and one of the benefits they are afforded is time off to be with their family or travel or do whatever they want to do or just, you know, sit on the couch and rejuvenate or whatever and are saying no to that benefit. And I'm I'm with you. It blows my mind that people would make that decision. And again, I I am blessed to work for this company where they give you that time off. They're extremely flexible of when you can take that time off. And they don't um, guilt you by taking time off. How much of this do you think is the fault for lack of a better word of the employer where because i think there are some companies where employees are given a big workload and expected to get it all done no matter the hours they worked and that creates a scenario where workers are fearful of taking time off yeah. because there might be repercussions do you think any of this you know half a people half the people in the u.s giving up some of their time off do you think some of that is on the shoulders of employers who absolutely too much? absolutely and maybe you're listening right now thinking, yeah, that's my employer. <sighs> that's not a good employer. Somebody who guilts you into saying, you know what, you can't take this time off. I know you have it. I know it's part of the benefit of working here. Yeah. Now, that being said, uh, if there are certain times of the year where it's like, you know, it's their crunch time and an employee says, oh, I wanted to, you know, this is, I'm going to Cabo or wherever this week. Yeah, the, you as an employer have a right to say, okay. I know you can take this time off, but if you're a team player here, can you maybe pick another time? I'm all for that. But to guilt somebody and saying, no, you just can't take time off. I mean, I know you have it, but boy, you know, it's uh, we're going to fall fall behind without you here. Yeah. Well, it's just it, that means that you have not allocated responsibilities correctly or you have not uh, hired enough staff. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I agree. It's on the employer to have the coverage they need to get the job done while you're in your absence. Yeah. I just can't imagine, uh, uh, not, not being able to take that time off and because t- there's so much, obviously the benefit, uh, no, you and I are both in the same boat. We love to travel and it's not like, you know, usually I'm not just taking time off just to not be at work. I'm usually taking time off cause I'm going somewhere. That's kind of the main reason, but it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. You can take your time off for whatever reason you want, just to step away yeah. from the office. And some people are taking their time off to do a different job. Maybe they have, uh, you yeah. know, a, some gig work, or they go work at the state fair, or whatever it is, and they use their time that way. That's that's fine too. It's your time to do what you want. But to just sort of give it back to your employer seems uh, unwise. Not really due to repercussions per se, but having such a heavy workload, taking PTO leaves you behind when you come back, and it's just a dreadful feeling sometimes. I get that. I totally get that. 
And that's why a lot of us take work with us when we uh, go on vacation. 33-year sales career, I hated vacation. When I was away, no one was proactively driving my projects and customers. It was better for me just to work and take occasional long weekends. I'm retired now and enjoying the additional money I was able to make while working. For me, very fair trade-off. I get that too. Six five. What's the reason for you? If you're not taking your paid time off, let me know why. Six five one four six one nine two two six. Would love a phone call uh, on this topic, but we'll take more of your texts as well. Adam and Jordana, Sands Jordana on a Monday. Why aren't you taking time off? You earn it. Use it. Why are you afraid to use it? Maybe you're not afraid to use it. You've got some other reason for not using it. That's the question because we brought this up before, but there's a, a piece today in the Star Tribune with a, a doctor, a psychologist, saying use your vacation. The benefits far outweigh the drawbacks. But, again, out of the 90% of Americans who work full-time, uh, about half of them don't take all their paid time off in a year. And again, I'd argue that it's like, it's certainly your job, the kind of job you have plays a significant role in your feeling and your desire to take time off. Uh, that, which is why I'm grateful to work where I do. It provides us uh, plenty of opportunity to take time off. Jordana's off this week. I always love it, too. We get texts from somebody, oh, boy, that Jordana's never on the air. It's like, yeah, we have days off, too. Just <laughs> we can use them. Um, but why, uh, why don't you take your full time off if you don't do so? That dread of falling behind. Of at your job, it's it's extremely real. I get that, and which is again for me one of the reasons I like uh, not having or like taking my time off because I could be gone for a few days here and there and not totally miss out and not totally get behind when I get back to work. Uh, at my job, we have to take ten days off in a row. When they first did this, most people did not like it. Now we do. They're looking to make sure there is uh, not fraud since we work with money, cannot get emails or log in. Nice not to think about work. That was from Jane in Edina. Are a lot of companies doing that now, like forcing people to take like a significant block of time? That sounds like a furlough almost, but that's paid time off. And I'm wondering if, if, if we're seeing that with more companies that are like forcing you to take a certain amount of days in a row. I've heard of that at a few places, but I think that's still pretty rare that they're telling you you have to use a group of a time. I think sometimes that's for the employer's sake too, where they go, boy, if you take two weeks off, that's easier for us than if you string yeah. it out and, yep. oh, I'm taking every Friday out for the summer. That can be yep. you know, harder for the company to fill in. Or companies where like – if it's not a use it or lose it situation, yeah. or if they pay you at the end of the year if you haven't used your pay, that's totally. I, I get that for a lot of people too. Saying, "Look, I'm you know my weekends are fine. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep working, yeah. and then I'm not taking those vacation days. You can pay me. You can write me a check yeah. at the end yeah. of the year. I, 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 told, I get that too. So I think the math would be a lot different, right? Families, you, you totally. get through the year and you go, "Well, what would we rather have? An extra check at the end of the year or these days off?" And that's totally fair. Uh, text six five one four six one nine two two six. 
Uh, Adam, people who won't take off kind of balance those who look for any and all reasons to miss work. I've seen many of both. Um, yeah, it's different if somebody is like frequently calling in sick or taking excuses not yeah. to come to work. That's different than using your allotted paid time off. Uh, yep, I have a paid holiday today, but I'm on my way in because the stuff is literally, in the, in the literal sense of the word, piling up on the dock. Um, I've been uh, with the same company 30 years. And up until about 15 years ago, if you wanted to move up in the organization or be one of the cool kids, it was based on how much you worked and how much vacation you left unused at the end of the year. That has changed mainly because of the younger workforce won't put up with it. Yeah, That is totally true, generational. Yeah. I think the younger workers are like, nope, mm-hmm. this is no, we're not yeah. beholden to this job and we're not locked to this job because and it also has to do with the job market because mm-hmm. you know what? You don't value my time off. Yeah. I'll go someplace that yeah. Uh, yeah. does value. And uh, I my think time away. younger workers, including myself, I've said this in interviews before. Um, I've asked about the PTO policy and made it clear that travel is important to me, and mm-hmm. like I'll be using that PTO. That's a big part of the benefit package for me. And and I, I've, I've still gotten the jobs because that's the uh, like you said it the generational difference that folks that are younger and have families really value that time away. Hi, Adam. I used to work for a place that uh, used to not make you take your vacation or sick leave, and they let you accumulate 800 hours vacation and 280 hours uh, sick leave. When I first started, I had a boss who told me to treat it like a savings account. Take your vacations, but work around when the office uh, was... Uh, I lost the rest of that text. I, I assume when, it, when, when yeah. like we were talking about, if it's a sp- stressful period, like here, like the state fair, like we typically... I don't know if it's prohibited, mm-hmm. but there's a general sense that no, you don't take time off during the state fair because that's Correct. like all hands on deck. Yeah, you know, and people want to see you when you're at the fair. Yeah, I think you know the art. What got us going on this conversation is people who are in a use it or lose it situation and then choose to lose it at the end of the year. I think it is different, and I mean, it makes me think: what would it be like if that were like a bank where I could? You know, if I kept five days every yeah. year, that that would just add up and add up and add up, and then I could either well, you retire, use it all at once, or you just get a big check when you're done. Yep. Then, or you retire like six months early. Yeah, because yeah, you've got totally. six months of vacation piled yeah. up. So to me, then that's fine. You're using the benefit. Right. It's not like you're just saying no to it. Yep. Uh, when your job involves a lot of face-to-face or personal interactions with people outside your organization, who only get ten to fourteen days of PTO a year. Uh, while you're taking four to six weeks a year, it sends a major negative message to some that you interact with outside your organization. I get that. I, I just and, and again, it's it's always based on you know what kind of job you're doing. My current job with Nike Corporate is the first job where I've used up all my time off. My manager will remind us to take the time off, and it's encouraging to work for a company that makes using up the paid time off as part. Of the culture, I agree with that one hundred percent. And again, I know that all workplaces aren't changing overnight, and I know that a lot of older workers, or myself included, even in our generation, look at the younger generation and think, you know what? I busted my butt for so so many years and had to deal with that. You guys could do the same. Nah, you know, you got to realize sometimes they're doing it smarter and even smarter than we did it. And changing the work culture allows them to do so. Um. Some industries require the two weeks, such as regulated banking. 
in the accounting department. Um, let's see here. Uh, 20 years, I cashed out 1,000 plus hours at my final pay wage. Since then, the policy has changed to use it or lose it. Yes. Yeah. And they merged everything to pay time off with a smaller cap. I'm so grateful to that boss for that initial tip. Another great show. Have a fabulous day. Thank you very much for that comment because uh, texters have got a case of the Mondays today. Got a lot of texts that are a little harsh today. Oh, well. Uh, we started the show uh, delayed because we aired the Martin Luther King breakfast over at the convention center. It happens every year, and we get to hear it live. And we heard it uh, live today, and it was very moving. It was very encouraging. And the man who was the moderator, Dr. Yohuru Williams, who is Distinguished University Chair and Professor of History and Founding Director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas, we talked to, we've talked to him before. He was moderating that event today. And he's uh, live, he's with us in studio for the next couple of segments. So Dr. Williams, next on WCCO. On this Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we did air the uh, Martin Luther King Annual Breakfast in downtown Minneapolis. And my next guest, who is in studio, was moderator of that event. You've heard him on this radio several times. Dr. Yuhuru Williams is the Distinguished University Chair and Professor of History and Founding Director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for being with us today. And I was asking you about... uh, the impressiveness of your keynote speaker today that we heard before we started our broadcast. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on on the Odyssey app. She was phenomenal. And I think one of the things that, you know, at 19 years old to be able to articulate, yes. I think so beautifully and encapsulate some of the challenges that we have in this moment, but do so with such grace and poise. It was pretty incredible. I started the show um, on a, with this possibility, even in this day and age, when we see pushback against affirmative action, pushback against DEI, uh, maybe this is Pollyanna of me, um, but I feel like in these moments where we're at least questioning these policies that have been put in place to make Americans equal, that that is a sign of progress. Am I foolish in saying that? No, I think you're hopeful. And optimistic. And I think that's where we need to be in a lot of ways. I think part of the challenge in our contemporary moment is recognizing that we have these moments of progress that are then tempered by backlash. And so when we find ourselves in uh, moments like today where there's this tremendous pushback, we sometimes lose sight of the fact that we're further along today than we were 10 years ago. But we have to be vigilant so that we don't lose ground as part of that backlash, as part of that pushback. Uh, it- in today, for, for African Americans, uh, the, the main concerns, the main struggles, uh, considering this election year and what, what direction this country might, might go, what, what is at the top of that list? Well, they remain these kind of six uh, challenges that I call the six degrees of segregation. But the main ones are housing, education, access to places of public accommodation. Uh, you'll sometimes hear people talk about the social determinants of health. I kind of fold that into access to places of public accommodation or public services. 
um, unfair labor practices, voting rights, and then the most intractable and visible of those six degrees, Jim Crow justice, um, what we see in terms of violence against black and brown people by police, which, you know, everybody kind of focuses on that. But it's those other issues that inform that as well. Uh, this is uh, almost uh – uh, specifically, if we talk about St. Paul, we look at a, a community that is testing out some of these ideas when you talk about housing or guaranteed income that, again, we see it here when the when we talk about it on the radio, we get a lot of pushback and people wondering uh, about about those policies and how they benefit the greater good. What is the best way to articulate that to like our listeners, people who look like me, white guys or white women? saying they don't understand that. What's the best way to articulate why those programs can work and what a future looks like if they do work? It's such a great question because I think, particularly on Martin Luther King Day, it's an opportunity to go back and to ask people to actually listen to the entire I Have a Dream speech because everyone likes to focus on the last two-thirds of the speech, but the first uh, half of that, or first segment of that speech is all about this blank check, this debt that America owes to African-Americans. And how in not fulfilling that promise, we undermine the central thesis of American democracy, which is those things that are articulated so beautifully by Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence or that we find in the DNA of the preamble to the Constitution, but which have not applied for people of color in this country, specifically for African-Americans. So if you say that you're a nation committed to holding truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal, and then you have a segment of your society where that isn't the reality – then that's not only propaganda during World War II for the National Socialists and the Japanese. That's the reality of a society where that's a liability because we don't live up to those kind of stated goals and objectives. And the reason it's problematic, I think, in our contemporary moment is, is we think about how America is becoming more diverse. Um, and we certainly see this here in the Twin Cities to deny access and pathways to success for large segments of the population and not recognize ways in which African-Americans are ground zero. Black people have been ground zero in that conversation. It means that we don't get the return on investment of what it means to be a diverse nation that privileges and celebrates diversity as a strength. This state compared to others, how are we doing in Minnesota? Well, on most metrics, unfortunately, Minnesota lags behind the rest of the nation. We heard people say this in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, where they talked about um, in terms of education, um, in terms of housing. And these are real challenges for us. Where I don't want people to get discouraged is that where there's challenge, there's opportunity. And there's some great organizations that are doing work around this in the Twin Cities, which is really um, exciting to me. So um, we certainly still have challenges in terms of police brutality. We're still epicenter in that conversation. We now have two consent decrees uh, for the department um, here in Minneapolis. We still have challenges around housing. We still have challenges in terms of a, a pipeline here for employment. But again, I'm encouraged by what I've seen um, in uh, the state as a whole, but Minneapolis and St. Paul in particular, around addressing some of those um, inequalities. Talk about the work you do at the University of St. Thomas, and this is something that David and I, when we had this conversation this morning about you know progress and what it looks like and what it feels like, is we always seem to be encouraged by younger people and younger generations feeling like, we had a woman call in saying, you know, my grandkids have all kinds of friends. They don't seem to notice, well, they may notice, but they don't like think our skin color makes us any different. Why does that change? And do you feel more hopeful now that the younger generation actually will do something about making that change? 
You know, it's a great question because I think part of the challenge that we have is that we are hopeful about the next generation, but at the same time, we put too much stock in the next generation without recognizing what we can do. And for me, there's a pass it off, pass the problems off to them. Exactly. And there's a little bit of a a balance here because we talk about somebody like Marley Dias, who is the speaker today. But I mentioned in kind of my intro to her that the civil rights movement was really spearheaded by young people, right? So it's always the younger generation, but they did that facilitated by people who were older than who recognized the value of that continuing struggle for equality. So we don't really pass the baton. We should facilitate growth. And part of that is recognizing that if we see young people tracking in a particular way in terms of identifying issues, can we connect those in tangible ways to the things that we see as problems and further the work? And I think that's what's so great about Marley is why she represents, you know, this kind of young leadership model, but she does it in conversation with um, that older generation of leaders, with those foundational issues we associate with the struggle for racial equality in ways that are very legible to people in community. And you need that. You know, you need the, a person like myself who, you know, may not understand the dimensions of some of the issues that she's facing to be able to say, but I can connect that to police brutality. I know what that looked like when I was growing up. And so in that way, I can make this connection and that's real. And then you can build a foundation for people to continue the work. I do. She was also talking about, <laughs> I forget what question you asked her, but she talked about, you know, dismantle white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's tough, again, speaking for you know, people I know, my friends and a lot of people who listen, they hear that and they think, yeah, but I, I don't think I'm a white supremacist. But that, but, and they, and they fail to see the systems that we're talking about. Is it difficult to, to have that conversation and differentiate that? And do you feel that that is that is part of the pushback? Maybe some of the reasons you get some of that pushback. It, it's the nomenclature. I mean, those words are harsh and they're difficult for certain people to deal with because they immediately have this reaction that that's not me. I don't want to be put in that category of people who, when I hear white supremacists, I think card carrying member yep. of the Ku Klux Klan and burning crosses on people's lawns, and I never would have done any of that. But Dr. King talked about um, extensively um, in his later years how we are being passive recipients of injustice. And that's what white supremacy is, not recognizing the ways in which housing patterns and practices in the state excluded African-Americans deliberately, right? And so that redlining and all those things that went into play, certainly now later generations are benefiting from, and that's a legacy of white supremacy. So if we could understand it in that way, it takes some of the sting off the language, which I think is jarring, and people immediately say, I don't want to be part of that. In a racial justice initiative at the University of St. Thomas, part of what we do, part of my work is bottomed on historical recovery, but I try to do it in a way that's jargon-free because I think sometimes the language prevents people from trying to get into the spirit of what is it that you're trying to um, lead us to understand about this. We talk about Mapping Prejudice, this incredible project out of University of Minnesota or the great documentary Jim Crow of the North, which Twin Cities Public uh, Television uh, put on. They do a good job of that because they go back and they confront that history in a way that then you go, that's what you mean by white supremacy. I benefited by virtue of these programs that excluded African-Americans and I own my home and I was able to send my kids to college as a result of that. And maybe we do need to revisit how we got here. And Is is there any reparative work that we could do to address the disparities that have been left in the wake of that? I feel the same way, too, about the language, I, and I brought this up before, is the, like the white privilege, too. I think people recoil when they hear privilege, and they assume, well, well, you think that I've been handed everything in my life. And no, that's not what we mean. It's that you, the advantages we faced 
that we got, we, we've, which we might not even recognize, they exist. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting for me because I often have to kind of lead audiences there in terms of male privilege, which I know very intimately. Yeah. So as a person of color, as, as a black man, I know what racial privilege and, and white supremacy look like. But for me to kind of flip that for an audience and say, but then I have to be cognizant of what male privilege looks like. And that gives me and even should give me a greater window on what it feels like then to understand and appreciate white privilege and what it means to be um, not privileged in certain spaces and in certain conversations. So I think it's all about sensitivity. But again, the jargon doesn't help us. So I think sometimes people lead with, you know, a book like White Fragility, which is phenomenal, or How to Be an Anti-Racist. And they react to the language without the impulse behind how do we build a more just and equitable society? And what tools do we need to do that? Can you uh, hang around for another segment? Is that all right? Happy to. Uh, Yahuru Williams. Dr. Yahuru Williams is the Distinguished University Chair, Professor of History, Founding Director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas. More of this conversation after the break. Linda's Construction Time Check, 1149. Time to receive 50% off installation labor on Minnesota Made Infinity from Marvin Windows on this Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. We are joined by Dr. Yuhuru Williams, Distinguished University Chair and Professor of History and Founding Director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas. We also took another call today, too, about a woman wondering about the reaction the public would have if Dr. King uh, were alive today, because I feel like there's this pushback against activists. Not to say that during his time he was well-beloved by everybody, um, but what, what's your answer to that question? How you think like Martin Luther King would be recognized today? It's a great question because Dr. King was vilified yes. toward the end of his life. So it's a, it's interesting for people to kind of view King in the context now of what um, a legend and soft focus is. Robert Lipsy wrote about Muhammad Ali after Muhammad Ali's passing. So years later, people kind of forget that Martin Luther King pushed back against the Vietnam War. And there was political um, capital that he paid for that, that Dr. King spoke out against um, economic injustice in ways that made people uncomfortable, that even though he helped to shepherd through the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, he then marched to Chicago in 1966 and, and really upset northern liberals who had supported the movement and really wanted to look at this as a southern phenomena and didn't want to deal with the racism and injustice in their own backyard. So – you know, if Dr. King were here today, I think he'd um, be a polarizing figure today in the same way he was a polarizing yep. figure in his lifetime. Um, and, and I think that's in part important in terms of how we think about the, this historical recovery. There are people today that we look at who might make us uncomfortable, but there's a lot of growth in recognizing that those who leave us feeling a little uncomfortable sometimes can really help us grow when it comes to big social issues like dealing with racial injustice. The conversation of race, uh, again, we talked about it. It's often, often like you, you walk on eggshells when you talk about it because we're so afraid of saying the wrong thing or being viewed as saying the wrong thing. And now those moments can live on, whether it's somebody tweets about it or and suddenly there it is seemingly uh, with, a, with an unending life. How do we overcome that? <laughs> That's the question if we knew the answer to, but... Is there advice you have for people even listening and saying, you know, I'd love to have a conversation about this. I'm just I, – I get so nervous talking about race relations. You know, I'm, I'm, this is tough because we're in such a moment now in terms of people really feeling like you can be vulnerable in sharing your discomfort or lack of knowledge or ignorance, whatever you want mm -hmm. to call it, 
And that's all of us. So on any number of issues, we can all find ourselves in that uncomfortable position of saying, I didn't know, I, I need to grow, yeah. I have to learn. But I think we have to create safe spaces to do that. And a lot of my work has been about creating those spaces. I don't want anyone to come into an, a, a space of learning and immediately feel shamed or blamed. And yet at the same time, I want to be open enough and honest enough about the history that we can have an earnest conversation about how we got here. And that means tackling some things that are ugly and that should make us uncomfortable. Um, if we don't, then why would we take action? Yeah. So a lot of this, I think, bottoms on this idea that we really have to be comfortable being uncomfortable, but we also have to get out of this um, basically banishing people or canceling people when they make mistakes. We don't grow if we're selling a society in which we assume that everyone's perfect. The people who we uh, venerate in history are those who've made mistakes and learned from those mistakes and have done incredible things given the knowledge of where they failed. And I think we lose some of that when we focus on this idea that linguistic um, certitude and imperfection, the way we talk about an issue, equates with real change. I, I change any of that. Um, I trade any of that for a moment mm -hmm. for real reform and policing or um, an expansion of access to uh, health care for all. You know, those are the things that matter. And some of the individuals who delivered that, you know, Lyndon Johnson um, was used the most colorful language probably of any president. Right. Um, and if we look back on him, people would look at him and say, well, he was a white supremacist. And yet in terms of his programs and policies, he did more to address civil rights than probably any president in the 20th century. So it's, it's important for us to understand that you, we need that nuance and that space for people to fail, to make mistakes, but to be uncomfortable being uh, be comfortable being uncomfortable so we can get to those growth points speaking of president we have a presidential election happening this year um what most concerns you uh, and about your struggle and your movement uh with this race that's happening this year and in the future of this country you know i i am still concerned about the long shadow of january 6th and what that represented when mm -hmm. people marched to the u.s capitol and this is what we when we were talking about white supremacy earlier. You know, people say, well, I don't see that that was racialized. Well, when you march on um, the U.S. Capitol carrying the Confederate flag and the new symbols of white supremacy and racial terror, then there's it's hard to decouple that from the history and to, to say that in no way was that influenced by this kind of backlash against diversity, equity and inclusion or tackling racial justice. So I'm concerned a lot. I think in this moment there's a lot at stake. Um, in terms of American democracy and democratic practice, not in terms of Republican and Democrat, but in terms of a president who, you know, leaves office basically wrecking the machinery of government and wrecking the whole um, machinery of how we've practiced peaceful transition of power in this country. That should be concerning to all Americans. Democracy is at stake in that sense. So, you know, I, I think for me, as I think about this, it's why we need that John Lewis voting rights legislation to ensure communities of color will still be able to exercise the franchise unencumbered by political chicanery and rules changes and those types of things. It's why you really have to – we all need to be invested in going out and exercising this because January 6th is less about what happened on that day and more about what we do in response. And that means that we really have to dig deep into practice everyday democracy. And a big part of that is how we use the vote, utilize the vote. And yet numbers for people of color have seemed to cool a bit with President Biden. How, how does, does that concern you and do you think he's doing enough to 
to get support by blacks and other minorities? It's a good question. I think this is, you know, again, the challenge for all of us, but certainly the challenge for African-Americans who support Biden in large numbers. And then the question is, has the administration, you know, paid that forward in terms of policy and legislation that has been responsive to the needs of the black community? And so, you know, again, there was this conversation that happened in the aftermath of Biden's election that was very similar to what we saw with Barack Obama, that Biden's saying, we'll have to be the president for all America. And then how do we bring these folks back into the fold? And you have those who were disproportionately the uh, victims of what happened um, on January 6th and beyond. We're saying, wait a minute, what do you mean bring those folks back into the fold? So this is the difficult dance um, that we do. But if I were the Biden administration, I'd be very concerned because it will be the inability to galvanize the base in this moment is the greatest danger. What do people have to be excited about? Dr. Williams, thank you so much. I wish I had another hour, but I'm sure we'll reach out and talk to you again. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Good seeing you in person. Dr. Yuhuru Williams from uh, University of St. Thomas on this Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. Chad is coming up next. Uh, Have a great day, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 